Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm yours, Kevin Rutherford. It is Tuesday, August 16th. We are here live, and it is time for another episode of the Power Hour. We will be joined by the team from Pittsburgh Power. We will hear from them in just a minute. And then, of course, we'll get to your calls and questions. So line them up. We're going to open the phone lines right now. If you have a question, a comment, a topic, anything at all to do with maintenance, we will tackle it. So pick up the phone and join us. 855-950-3835. We've got a lot going on this week. Uh, today will be the Power Hour right now. Later on, we'll do an episode of The Pit. I'm not sure yet uh, who will be joining me, if anybody. Uh, um, it will either be myself or myself and John and possibly Stanford, maybe both, one or the other. Who knows? We will see. But one way or the other, we will have an episode of The Pit today. A lot going on in politics. Holy cow, I could do The Pit just about every day. Um but that would probably make me a little crazy, too. I need a break from politics these days. Uh, speaking of a break, we've kind of taken a little break, even though we're working. We uh, came up north for the weekend uh, for Michael's wedding, and now we're just kind of hanging out and wandering around up here by the San Juan Islands, one of my favorite places in the country. I'm not sure how they got that name. Um, every time I think here San Juan, I think tropical. Uh, but yet here we are up north. Uh, we can look across the Straits of Juan de Fuca if we were over there and see Canada. So uh, weather's beautiful up here. We're having a great time. And it's awesome that our technology is holding out. We used the technology for the show yesterday. I think it was pretty flawless yesterday. So we will uh, see what happens. We've got, uh, we're actually working on another idea for a backup uh, to the technology when we're on the road. And uh, we might just be spending more time on the road these days. Helps us uh, get out, meet new partners, check out new things. So we'll keep you updated on that it looks like uh oh, what else uh tomorrow destination health i've got a couple ideas i'm working on um i may be able to put together some things on uh some more breathing looking at some new techniques to use throughout the day to improve our stress response so i'm really excited about the stress protocol been working on it for over a year i made some big breakthroughs on it just recently and there's still a lot of room for tweaks um so i'm excited about that i think this is an area of health where we haven't had a lot of good information in fact the more i learn about this the more i realize there is almost nothing out there uh, that really helps you understand what stress is, why it's a problem, and how to fix it. Uh, we, we may end up writing a book or a course out of this when we're all done with it because we've learned a lot. And like I said, there just isn't anything out there. There's not a single book that I would really recommend about stress. I, mean, I can't think of one. I haven't read one. So... We may end up writing it. Who knows? All right. We are going to jump in to the day and get started on the power hour. And Bruce, it looks like you're up first. So we'll let you kick us off today. Welcome back. 
Well, thank you, Kevin, as always. It's our pleasure. So are you... And it was nice uh, seeing you all dressed up for your son's wedding. Pictures on Facebook that Lisa posted. Yeah, I don't get dressed up very often. uh, you look good in that pink shirt and that tan suit, and tan shoes. You know the, you know I, the. I was impressed. You know the crazy thing about that: every piece of it—the shirt, the jacket, the pants, the socks, the tie. Well, I didn't wear a tie, but there was one. The shoes, everything. Lisa goes and buys that without me even being there, and everything fits perfect. She's so good at that. She's I, good. Oh, she's really good. The clothes looked amazing. They fit. They were comfortable. Uh, it was pretty incredible. Yeah, and I, I didn't do a thing. She just said, here. Um, so that uh, <laughs> that worked well. Um, yeah, it was a good wedding. Small, you know, yeah. nice outdoor weather was perfect. It was, uh, it was a good time. Yeah. Okay. So... Uh, you know, years, I'm getting to the age where uh, when my father was my age, he said, wow, a lot of my friends are dying. And, you know, you don't think about that when you're young, but we lost Ed Brock last week. From Brock Brothers trucking at 85 years old. At 83, he was wanting to buy his brother out because his brother wanted to retire. These guys had 100 KWs. They hauled brick. Out of Hanover, PA. They were from New Oxford, PA. Brock Brothers Trucking and H.M. Kelly. And uh, good people. He had a heated garage floor, and that's why we have a heated garage floor. <laughs> because I copied it after his garage. And yeah. I met Ed back in the, around 83, 84, and we were doing great American truck racing. They had a high horsepower K and a a model Kenworth and Charlie Baker drove and they were like the truck to beat. But Ed was a great guy. We're going to miss him. And then my very first employee, he was still in high school and he'd come and help me after high school and would work on Saturdays on trucks. George Bartis, he uh, finished his life out with by the Freightliner and cancer, cancer got both these guys. Ed was 85 and George was probably around 60. Oh, yeah. Well, Sad to see both of them go. And Bruce, I hate to add to that list, but uh, we just lost another dear friend recently from the uh, Let's Truck family. Tom Bach passed away from OPS. Did he really? Yeah. Yeah, from OPS. Tom was, uh, Tom was the first guy I met from OPS, and... Um, We've been great friends ever since. He's been a huge help to us, and um, a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of the tribe know Tom. Tom spent hours with people on oil samples and helping people out. He was just a, a great guy. Uh, I remember the first time I met him. I was doing a seminar at the Dallas Truck Show early. Um, it may have even been the first or second year of the Dallas show. And I was doing a, a seminar on lowering maintenance costs. And I was talking about a whole bunch of things, wheel balancers and alignments. And But the big focus was really on oil changes and why we changed our oil. And I went through the whole thing. And at the time, um, just like you, I was using the Harvard bypass system. First system I ever tried. I thought mm-hmm. it was fantastic, worked great. Uh, and so... 
during the seminar, I was talking about the Harvard system and showing how it works. And I saw this guy, he was all the way in the back by himself and he was taking all kinds of notes. And at the end, he came up and he said, you really know your stuff about oil and oil analysis and filtration. And he says, everything you said, I agree with. He said, but I can show you a better way. And he showed me the OPS and it was really like very, very similar in design to the Harvard. They had just really been able to shrink it quite a bit. The Harvard was a pretty big filter and they were able to shrink it quite a bit and still get the same, you know, good filtration. And, and now look, you guys own OPS now. So, um, what a great well, we story. We own it, it was... because of Tom Bach. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Tom Bach was the one that said to the people behind OPS that we need to talk to Pittsburgh Power to save this product. Yeah, you know, Tom was yeah. was such a big part of that company. He was so frustrated the whole time. I, I worked with him, and I'd get that phone call, it seemed like, about every other year. Uh, Kevin, somebody just bought OPS again. We've got new people to deal with. And Tom had such great ideas for that company. And every time they'd bring in a new CEO, it'd be like they were starting all over again. Then they'd go bring in new investors and they would want to do things a certain way. And Tom and I, over the years, would talk about it, that that company could, it was a great company, great product, but they just had management problems forever. It could have been so much better. And now it is. Now that you guys have got it, that's the best thing that could have happened. Well, thank you. And I want to talk about working on your truck at home and working on everything, anything. Yesterday, there was a, uh, my neighbor's boat had a leaky faucet. And it's a 1989 Hatteras. So, I mean, I'm in, the parts are 30 years old. So we go underneath he and I, he's a contractor, and we turn the valves to be able to remove the faucet as the faucet was leaking into a spray faucet. And the valves wouldn't shut off. They would turn, but the water kept coming. So we shut the water pump off and drain the water system. And their plastic valves took them apart. Didn't see anything wrong with them. You know, you take the Phillips screw, you pull the, take the screw out of the center, pull the head off, and took the Phillips screwdriver and push the valve assembly right out of the holder. Well, there's a little O-ring on there, about three sixteenths of an inch in diameter. And he has an O-ring kit. So we put a new O-ring on it, and we sprayed PAM on it to have some lubricity to push the valve back together. And uh, it worked. It did it. So we didn't have to go buy a new valve. And so we take the faucet apart and we look, and it's the spray part that was leaking and it was going back down through and draining under the sink. Another (laughs) O-ring. This is about half inch in diameter. So we put another O-ring on it. We couldn't get this thing together, and we tried and tried. So we went one size smaller. We got it together. And he said to me, I don't think this is going to work. It worked. Oh, man. (laughs) So so in the meantime, I had ran up and got him another faucet at Home Depot for $229. So that's going back today. The two valves are going back today because they were fixed. Wow. But uh, a few years back, I was working on a boat, 
and it had two Raycor fuel filters per engine. And there was a diverter valve in between. So if you're out in the ocean, you know, you, you clog a fuel filter, you just turn the valve 180 degrees and you're on the other Raycor fuel water separator. Well, I noticed the Raycors were sucking air. You can see it through the glass bowl on the bottom. So I'm moving the lever on the valve and I see it's coming from the valve. So Parker Hannafin had bought Raycor. So I called Parker Hannafin. I said, I, I, t- I took the valve apart, three O-rings. Nothing wrong inside the valve other than the three O-rings. I said, I need total six O-rings. I want to rebuild these two valves. And they said, oh, we don't sell the O-rings. We sell the complete valve. It's $110 per valve. I said, well, there's nothing wrong with the valve. I just need the O-rings. I just need an O-ring. Yeah. <laughs> so... This one Ace Hardware, they had a retired mechanical engineer from General Motors working there. And uh, he was an older gentleman, and I walked in there with those two valves, and his name was Gene. I said, Gene, get your O-ring kit out here. And so we matched up the O-ring, six O-rings, $3.74, saved $220. <laughs> oh, that's and then uh... I thought, you know, I did a seminar about 18 years ago in uh, Jamaica. And then I also judged a truck show in Jamaica. And while I was down there, parts that we throw out, they they keep yeah. and rebuild. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty And then incredible. I started thinking about my... Right. And, you know, my father went through the Great Depression... So he would take everything apart and fix it. To go to work, he would take and cut the bead off of one tire and put that tire inside another tire and mount it. That way you didn't need to worry about holding air. (laughs) He made his own airless tires. Michelin's been trying to do that for decades. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, this is back in, it was a Great Depression, like 36 or something. Yeah, wow. And, you know, none of us were alive and nobody listening to the show was probably alive then or, or, or knew they were in the depression. Right. Yeah. But our parents had to fix everything. And so living in the country, everybody had sheds and, and the sheds were filled with stuff because you never knew when you would need one of those items to fix something. But I'd watch my dad take a twelve dollar toaster apart to fix it. <laughs> Spend more time than what it was. But his mind in his mind was he's gonna fix it. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. And well, so, you, I, I anyway, just, you know, think I just about that. thought of go ahead. Yeah, I just I don't mean to interrupt, but I just thought of two things growing up as a kid that were pretty normal. There were shops everywhere that just really don't even exist much anymore. Two things we used to repair. There were shops everywhere. Shoes and TVs. Mm-hmm. There used to be shoe yep. repair shops everywhere. Like, that was a common thing. And TV repair yep. shops were all over the place. We don't fix those anymore ever. Uh, you know, TVs, you just throw them away and buy another one. And it's just, um, it's kind of crazy. And it, it's, you know, you think about what we're doing in landfills with all that, but it's not even practical to even think about fixing a TV today. You'd be insane to try. 
Well, J.R., one of our electrical engineers, uh, came from Samsung Television, and he can still fix those televisions. He can, but how much would I have to pay him? I can't do it. I don't. I mean, in order for me to gain that knowledge and figure out how, you look at all the time you would spend, or if you had to pay somebody like Jr. what he's worth, I could buy four TVs. What he would cut charge me to fix one. Yeah, that's just you know that's just what we've done. It always pays to take stuff apart. You take a part off your truck or whatever, take it apart and look at it before you buy another part. Maybe it's just an O-ring. When I got into the engine business 45 years ago, we rebuilt water pumps, rebuilt oil coolers, after coolers. Yeah. Everything has O-rings. Everything has gaskets. Um, Hey, you remember the, was it the 300 Mac with the fan tip? turbine or something it had two charge air coolers on it and one blew air through a little charge air cooler and then it went through the big charge air cooler this charge air cooler was about 12 inches long six inches wide inch and a half thick do you remember those kevin i don't remember that what year would that have been then they were mechanicals this would have been mid 80s no mechanical mac no don't remember that so I had one in the shop. We didn't really work much on Max, but man, it had a massive boost leak. So I called Max for this part. And this it was like $800. A lot of money back in the 80s. And I looked at where it was leaking, and it had white silicone sealant in there. So I took it ice pick and screwdrivers and I dug all that out of there and cleaned it all up and I got some clear GE silicone and I put a bead all the way around and through that and I let it sit the next day because it was it was gap was probably a half inch and I had it off next day another bead this truck didn't have to work every day and it was hauled heavy I think it just hauled equipment and stuff but after about four days, I had this gap all filled up when I let that silicone cure. Fixed it. That held three dollar and eighty five cent tube of silicone. I fixed that that, that uh, little after cooler. That's crazy. Anyway, yeah. Huh. All right. Good stuff. Sometimes it's amazing what you can do with junk parts. We've taken. Uh, Back in the early 90s when truck pulling, truck pulling still big, people would go to the junkyard and buy a old Pete or an old Kenworth with a big cab in it. And I said, well, let's just keep this as, as junkyard. We would go through our injectors and find six injectors. They were wore out, but we could replace them, put a few parts in them and patch up the fuel pump and put some parts together and make a turbo and end up with about 800 horsepower on yeah. junk parts. <laughs> so, Bruce, I've got a question for you. Um, we've all had that. Anybody who's worked on any kind of a vehicle, a motorcycle, a car, anything whatsoever, knows when you reach that frustration level with the engineers, you're trying to fix something and you think, why the hell did they do this? A um, couple examples that came to mind for me. I remember, I don't remember what car. I owned a car. I can't remember. It was a, my first. I had a Pontiac Le Mans. But when you pulled the oil plug out to drain the oil, 
right below it was it was like the tie rod under something was right there and the stream would come out and hit it and splash everywhere it was just crazy i'm like couldn't they have moved that plug a little bit and the other one i remember a good friend of mine in high school had um the 80s early 80s version now would have been late 70s would have been late 70s the mustang too the cobra that little one, and they stuck a V8, mm-hmm. the 302 yeah. V8 in the Cobra. You And back yeah. then, remember, we used to have to change spark plugs a lot. You set the points, change spark plugs. That was just a common thing. You did it pretty often. You had to take off a motor mount and jack up the back of that motor to get that one spark plug out of that back corner. It was just, it was so much work, and getting to the motor mount wasn't easy. It was like a three-hour job to change spark plugs on that thing. So my question was going to be, you've worked on a lot of vehicles. You worked on RVs quite a bit. You're very familiar with them and now boats. Um, I know that trucks are bad. RVs are far worse than trucks. I have to believe the boats might be even worse, aren't they? Boats can be tough. Yeah. Yeah, Years ago, I uh, this uh, Bayliner and a Fox Chapel Yacht Club. And he knows in it. And I had to go down and change the oils and align the shafts. And they had white carpet. You'd come up out of the engine room into the main salon, which is the living room, on the white carpet. <laughs> and I had two five gallon buckets almost filled to the top with old oil. And I said to myself, you got to be really careful. And I tripped coming up the ladder. <laughs> and here I am, almost running across this living room on this white carpet. I, I should have had lids on the buckets, and I didn't. Oh, man. But I didn't spell it. Wow. But, uh, yeah, sometimes you're hanging upside down. Some yeah. things are tough. Yeah, I'll bet. And you just you have to, mentally, you have to say, there may be 45 bolts involved. Like the change injectors in a big cam comes, I think there's 52 bolts. But when you're working on an engine and it's halfway back under the dash, you have to concentrate on one bolt. And mentally, you have to tell yourself, I just have to get this bolt, just like that spark plug. <laughs> If not, your mind can drive you crazy because you know you're you're spending too much time on this one and you've got all these other ones to do. Clock's ticking and the truck's got (laughs) to go. But you have to be able to control the mind and say just this one thing. Yep. Good point. Good point. All right. Well, let's go ahead. Another thing. uh, Oh. When people leave their name, when they say their name, when they're leaving us a message on voicemail, they get real anxious to get to the problem. And they say their name so fast. And they'll say the trucking company name. We don't need the trucking company name. We just need your name. And But just say it a little bit slower. Uh, there was a guy, Wes. But he said Wes so fast that I couldn't hear Wes. And that was this morning. So, yeah. 
say the name a little bit slower. So uh, as your brain gets older, maybe it takes a little bit longer to comprehend some of these things. <laughs> well, you know, and some people might be thinking, well, you know, they've got my number. They'll call me back. If they don't know my name, it's no big deal. But it is, and I'll explain why, because you guys can go back and look up history. And I'm sure you do. You get a call and, and you go back and look, has this truck been in here before? Because then you'll be able to help them so much more if you can do that ahead of time before you get them back on the phone again. I write down everyone's name, their phone number, where they're from and their age, what truck, what engine. We're talking about gears, what gears, what tire size. And I fill four or five pages a day in the notebook. If a guy said, I talked to you a couple of weeks ago, if they could give me the exact date, I can go back to that page. Right. And then I don't have to rewrite it, but who remembers that exact date? Oh, by the way, lots of questions, lots of calls on ping tanks, ping tanks for on airbags and auxiliary cooling tanks. Talked to a guy yesterday, he said, boy, I put that auxiliary cooling tank on. I talked to you several years ago about that. He said, that sure did fix that problem. Good, good. Yeah, we, we, we do the same thing here. Our, our tribe care team, they don't just take a phone, you know, a message and then just immediately return the call. They take a message and then they go look up history. You know, what, what can we do before we make the call so we can get this done? So, yeah, take your time, leave a good number and a good name, and uh, it will help. Anything else, Bruce? Oh, yeah. Years ago, one of my very first customers, he had Max. His name was Leach. His last name was Leach. Really, really neat um, colored fellow. Or should I say African-American? Loved this guy. He had a van set up, had air compressors, his tools in, and he would... uh, come and hang out with me when he didn't have to work on his trucks. And we had great conversations. I was 28 years old. He uh, choked on an ice cube in his living room at a party that he was hosting and he died. But his son, his his son, Baron has stayed in touch and still drives dumping trucks. He's still driving old mechanical Mac. Wow. Called me yesterday. Huh. With a turbo issue on a 300 Mac. I said, what's your turbo boost? He said, truck didn't come with one. I said, Baron, how old are you? He said, 60. <laughs> I said, I've known you your whole entire life almost. You were 15 years old when I met you. You know how I feel about turbo boost gauges. Yeah. He said, well, who's going to put it in? I said, it's a simple gauge yeah. to put in. And uh, so anyway. Yeah. Turbo boost gauges. We need to know turbo boost. And you buy these old uh, fleet trucks, they don't have a boost gauge. And it's $102. Buy the boost gauge kit. Call us up. We'll send it to you. We'll even tell you how to install it. There you go. There you go. Okay. All right. Good so what's stuff. the ice cubes? Yeah, watch, watch, watch the ice cubes. Don't be talking when you have a mouthful of ice cubes, right? Good point. All right. Well, let's uh, let's bring in. I'm assuming I've got Pete and Leroy on this line. Who wants to be up first today? I'll go first, Kevin. How are you to go? All He's right. ready to dabble. There we go. Good morning. I'm doing good, Pete. How about you? Good. Hey, when did uh, Tom pass away? I, 
I literally spoke to him a week and a half or two weeks ago, it seemed like. Yeah, Lisa just told me last night. Uh, she saw it um, and mentioned it last night, and I, I don't have any other details what happened when it, it was exactly... Um, and I wasn't going to mention it this morning till I got more details, but then that was like the first topic today. So, um, yeah, just uh, just kind of crazy. Him and Artie were a good group of oh, guys to work with. Oh, man, yeah. I mean, I, I think and of, goes, they were so much fun. you know, a, every event, whether it was a truck show, and, and Lisa and I traveled with those guys a couple times to truck shows. I remember once we all went to the Vegas truck show together, and, um, they, there were always stories to tell about those two. They are hilarious. They, uh, they were always the stories. I, I remember a CMC where those two caused so much trouble. I, I think they got everybody drunk and everybody was hung over the next day at the event. I remember when at the truck show talking about where we're going to go to eat and they were like a husband and wife fighting <laughs> yeah, over That's right. Yeah. Hilarious. That's and they're like serious. That, oh, no, we had Mexican last night. Do this. And, oh, come on, Tom. I and know. Back and forth. They were, the, the, they were a great team. Yeah. Yeah, they really were. Ta- you know, I, I can say this without Tom, OPS would have never survived as a company. They wouldn't have made it. Tom was the only person that kept that company going all those years. Yeah, we, we would, uh, you know, I'd call him once in a while with some oil questions. He's like, hey, anytime you need, you know, just give me a call. I'll be happy to help out. Uh, you know, I, I've taken courses on oil analysis over the years, but I learned more from Tom Bach about oil and oil analysis than, than any other source. He was just an encyclopedia for that kind of stuff. Yeah, he sure was. He sure was. It's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's uh, like Bruce said, we're, we're kind of all getting to that age where that's where you start talking about those kind of things. I remember my parents and even, you know, I'm the youngest of seven. So um, I remember, you know, my older siblings starting to talk about that. You get to that age where that just starts happening a lot. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I got cousins in their 70s now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, time flies. It seems like. Yeah, for sure. I got cousins in the team. You're dating. Come on. <laughs> oh, we don't talk about those anymore. Yeah. So I was going to talk about the, the supply chain. Um, customer called up looking for a uh, six NZ rebuild kit, and they're. 60 days out, um, Detroit injectors. We have a, it's a DDEX five in here. It needs injectors. You're 30 to 45 days out. Uh, one box is up to two months. Um, price out an, uh, ISX engine for a customer, complete engine. And there's like one left. And that's wow. it. So it's having issues with supplies and, and it changes. It, it's, the one boxes have been pretty steady being on back order. That, that's nothing new. Right, right. But the, um, you know, the injectors, so sometimes it's feature. Sometimes they have them, sometimes they don't. Um, the cat rebuild kit, same thing. You know, if you hit it right, they have them. If not, it's a ways out. But we're still dealing with that. I, you know, I'm starting to believe that there's no end in sight to this supply chain issue. 
you know, originally we thought, okay, it was the lockdowns, it was the pandemic, you know, it was people staying on unemployment too long. And, you know, for the most part, all that stuff's over. Nobody's getting paid a ton of money to stay home anymore. Um, There really shouldn't be many lockdowns. I know China was still locking down not that long ago, and that does impact a lot of stuff. But the more you look at this problem and the more I study it, the more I don't see any solution or end in sight to this. I don't see anything that's going to make this better. It looks like it's just going to keep getting worse. It sure seems that way. I mean, I'm not, you know, I drive past a car dealership and there's four new cars on the lot. That's not getting any better. Yeah. So I was Saturday, I went kayaking with my brother and his kids and we went to eat in a little town north of here. And walking around the town, little quaint town, and half the businesses had help wanted signs. Yeah. You know, in a window. Yeah. And that's, that is really, I for me so far anyway, becoming more of a problem than parts or stuff. To me, the biggest problem I seem to be facing everywhere I go is just not enough people. I've had horrible customer service from companies that are known for outstanding customer service. You either have to wait too long, you can't talk to anybody. When you do finally talk to somebody, they're clueless. Uh, it, I, I just, there is a, has been a distinct change in getting things done and getting things done well. And it all comes down to just people. Forget the parts. It, it's hard to find people these days. Yeah, last uh, Friday, uh, we were going to get takeout. And it was an hour wait because there was two people working there. We uh, well, we had the same experience. We're, uh, we're up in the islands, the San Juan Islands in um, northern Washington. And we've been coming here for over a decade. We love it up here. This is where Lisa and I got married up here in the tulip fields. I just love this part of the country. We have some favorite restaurants, and we were excited. There's a great seafood restaurant here because we're right on the water, and we were going to go the other night. So we and they, you know, on the website it says they recommend reservations. It's a nice place. So we called, no reservations available. We said, okay, well, you know, can they have takeout? I said, can we get an order to go? Uh, no, we don't have enough people. We're not doing to go orders. So, and then so the next night. Um, I forget something changed. We were able to get some food and we just ate it in the parking lot in the van. We couldn't get a table. Um, so we go back again the next night, we get the food. When I walked in there to pick up the food to carry it outside to eat it, at least half the tables were empty and they were turning people away. I I watched people after we walk in. Nope, nothing available. Nope. We're booked for the night and they were only using about half the tables. So what that tells you is it's not a space issue. They just don't have enough people. Yeah. A lot of restaurants, they, you know, they have a waitress for, you know, four tables, three tables, whatever it is. And if that's all the waitresses they have for the yeah. night, that's how many tables they, and, they open up. And cooks, you can only make so many dishes. If you're, you know, three cooks short for what you would normally have and what your kitchen's designed for, you just can't make enough food. And that that's all it was. And the whole island's like that. I mean, every place we went, you, you can't get into a restaurant on the island. And these places are paying a lot more than what they gotcha, used to. Yeah. I mean, years ago, you well, I mean, they didn't pay anything. Now, I mean, it's not that it's great money, but it's sure better than what it was. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, you know, I, I went through a good article yesterday on trucking cost. Atri put out a, a good, really recent article on trucking costs. And it's incredible. The costs are through the roof. And here's where the problem is going to come in. While those costs were going up, we almost didn't notice it because we were doing so good revenue-wise. We've had a couple of really, really good years in trucking for revenue, and so those costs didn't really hurt. In fact, we didn't even notice them. Everybody was doing better than ever, even after they paid all their expenses. Owner-operators are making more money than ever. The problem now is that those costs are not coming down. They're still going up, but revenue is coming down dramatically. And we are seeing, it's, it's not being talked about much, but we are already seeing um, horrendous trucking failures happening. Owner-operators going out of business, small fleets getting either bought or just going out of business, medium-sized fleets even. Uh, and we're just at the beginning of this. This, this is going to get worse because, again, it doesn't look like prices are coming down anytime soon. It doesn't look like we're going to get more people, so you have a service issue. And on top of that, we have to deal with um, lower revenue. I, I read an interesting article this morning. I posted it, and um, this one's interesting to me because I was a part of the FedEx system for so long as a contractor, and I know it really well. And you almost never see failures in the FedEx system. If you had a contract at FedEx with a truck and you failed, um, it was your fault. You, you did something wrong. There was plenty of money to be made in that system. Now, I got to separate it some. There's the guys with the vans that do the daily deliveries, and they're all contractors. And then there's the line haul guys. Line haul, if you failed at line haul, you should just get out of business. Um, it, it was just, it was that easy to make money in that system. The van guys, that was a little tougher. Um, no doubt about that. And those guys would come and go more often. But I read an article this morning. There's um, a contractor that they didn't tell me, it didn't say how many trucks he had, but his operation covers a 10 state area. And that's not trucks driving through 10 states. He actually owns trucks that are domiciled in 10 different states. Uh, and I've, I know some contractors over there that own 30 to 40 trucks. This guy may even own more than that. But he started an association, and he's actually trying, and I, I just don't agree with this. I don't understand it. He is now trying to collective bargain with FedEx on contracts uh, across the board. And actually, in this article, he said he's going to give that up, and now he's just going to work on like individual. FedEx's take on this from day one. They've been very clear about this. We will never negotiate contractor um, contracts or settlements with a third party. We're not going to collective bargain with anybody. We will, we will negotiate each contract individually. So if you think you're not getting paid enough at FedEx, you go to them directly and negotiate your own contract. And that's the way it should be. These are independent businesses. I just don't get that whole collective bargaining thing. But he went through the numbers and I, you know, here's, here's the problem with those guys. They didn't get a big run up over the last three years. Their revenue didn't change. It's pretty much set. It's not based on rates and it's almost all dedicated lanes. So your mileage doesn't change, your rate doesn't change. And it didn't need to, they were still doing fine the last 
three years, except now they have to deal with these big price run-ups, and they didn't have the benefit of revenue run-ups for a couple years first. So I, I think you're going to see a lot of those uh, van guys start to fail. You were starting to break up there a little bit, Kevin. Uh-oh. Okay, let me... Uh, how bad was it? Yeah, hit or miss. It didn't completely lose you, but it would fade in and out. Okay. Well, I'm not going to go back and repeat that because it was quite a bit. So <laughs> we'll just move on uh, from I there. <laughs> now, now we're going to move on from there. What else you got, Pete? That's it for me today. All right. Leroy, you're up then. What's on your that. mind today? Um, I have a short little funny story. Um, so we had a truck in the shop. I think last week, and this is not the first time that this guy was here. It's a 2000, like something W9 Kenworth. He was here multiple times for an idle validation fault code. So basically what it was saying is it wasn't seeing the throttle pedal completely released and it would throw a check engine light because it doesn't know where the pedal is at and he would lose his pedal sometimes. So he'd be going down a hill and as he would start to go back up the hill, he would have to like slap his pedal a few times and it would come back. So most of the time when I tell people, not even with just throttle pedal codes, just codes in general, like it's usually three things. You have the sensor, you have the wire, or you have um, the ECM. That's the only three things it can be. So the, before he got here, I think we replaced the sensor and he went on his way. Still had the issue, came back. We're like, okay, well, we'll try the wiring this time. It's, you know, it's hard to track down sort of intermittent issues where it doesn't do it all the time. It's just every now and then it would do it. So we replaced the wiring last time he's here. And then he's back a third time. I'm like, well, we only got sort of one thing left. So we put a test ECM on it. He goes up the road and comes back and it still has the same fault code. Now I'm just like, well, (laughs) we've replaced everything and it's still doing it. So this is not a great place to be, you know, as far as the diagnostic path. No. I don't know where that was in your book, the how to find a wolf in Siberia. There wasn't that uh, part of it. But, uh, well, <laughs> so anyway, you know, if, if, if we were applying this to the wolf in Siberia, when I got to this point, I'd have to say, well, the wolf ran away. <laughs> He's just not here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, uh, we ran out of it. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, well, I think this is the part where like most dealerships or like some people that aren't as good at troubleshooting run into problems. They think that they've replaced everything or they have, and then, well, we'll just start the train over again. We'll replace the sensor, then the wiring and then the ECM again. And this is where you have people that replace sensors, you know, five times and still never right. Yeah. So Ty ended up finding this really interesting problem that it actually had. Um, so if you lift the throttle pedal up on this W9, it has a three wire sensor that locates the pedal as far as the sensor, it's the actual, um, pedal position sensor. And then it also has a switch, a two wire switch hey. on the bottom of it to let the ECM know whether hey, it's Leroy? released or not. Is yeah. the, just, I just want to go back because I get this question a lot on the scan gauge, the official kind of name for that is throttle position sensor, right? TPS. Oh, you have a three wire 
TPS switch, throttle position sensor, and then you have a, um, a two-wire switch underneath it. So the switch is just a simple two-wire uh, little contact with a little metal uh, flexible piece on it that when it's on idle, it just pushes a little metal uh, plate down and makes contact, right? Okay. So what it ended up being was this guy put a new one in, but when the sensor or when the throttle was fully released, it wasn't giving enough pressure on that plate to make full contact. And if you would barely just sort of push on the the sensor to make contact, it would breed on idle. And that's why it was so intermittent because oh, it, that that okay. metal plate, however it was manufactured, just did not have the right sort of angle to it to hit the, the throttle pedal right. Yeah. So all we ended up doing was just bending that little plate, just just the smallest little bit and put it on works every time now wow man so that would be a tough guy one to find everything the guy has replaced everything the sensor the wiring and he even tried to test ecm and the whole time it was just the plate on the switch wasn't just bent enough wow that, that mm-hmm. would be a tough one to find it was a tough one to find and like i said it's it's kind of hard when you replace everything and then everybody's just like, okay, well, where do we go now? It's like, well, you know, we've sort of went through everything, you know, we've replaced everything. We went through the troubleshooting tree. Now we have to get creative and actually start to break down every single piece. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, like and even I can kind of sometimes see how you replace a part and in the back of your mind, you think, well, what if the part I replaced it with was bad and it can happen. It happens once right. in a while, but you know, once you've kind of eliminated that, you, you move on. I mean, the part's not going to be bad five times. Like you said, people just keep doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting a different result, right. and we know what that is. Uh, but it, but occasionally you do have to be careful of, sometimes you put a new part in and it's bad too. Yeah, I think big picture, like I said, there's three three boxes that all work together. But inside of those, each one of those boxes, there are other pieces to it. So you have to continue to break down the big picture into smaller and smaller pieces. Now we get to, okay, well, how does this sensor actually work? Yeah. And that's yeah. how we ended up finding it was like, okay, well, how does this sensor work? You know, and then we found the plate was not bent right. There you go. Yeah, it was a tough one to find, but tough to find simple find fix. It. Yep. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Actually, well, it didn't cost the guy anything. Well, there you go. That's, that's certainly good news. All right. What else you got? Right. Um, I, I don't, one of our dealers, Patrick Anderson, uh, he called in, I think a week or two ago about the Volvo that we put a test tune on. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Where I said I was going to get sold a tattoo, uh, across my forehead if it got eight and a half. Yeah, that's right. Well, he had, he had a, he scared me over the weekend because he messaged me, messaged me Saturday. He sent me a picture of his dash and was like, it says nine on the dash. Uh Oh, like, I don't believe you. <laughs> I was like, I don't believe you. I was like, is that just the dash or pen and paper? And he's like, well, that's just the dash, but it's close. Right. Well, you better, better double check. And he just got back to me this morning and, uh, he said that whole trip, I think it was 1300 miles. It was actually 7.7. Whoa. So it is well, improved, but I don't have to get a tattoo on my forehead yet. So yeah. 1,370 well, miles. Why did both ways. So why did he, when he made the comment, my dash is usually pretty close. That's nowhere near close. 
Wonder what happened there. Well, maybe I. It was just Mario part of the trip that it over it averaged just that part of the trip, and he did really well on that part of the trip. Or you know, it fell out of the sky, it grew wings, and flew for a while, and then came back down. Yeah, I don't know, but well, I was a little scared. <laughs> this is a question I've never asked, and you probably know this. So we we know that the truck itself isn't actually measuring the amount of fuel that that flows through, no. and then you'd have to separate out the return. I mean, it would be really complicated. You'd have to have. I, I actually looked into this. You'd have to have two really expensive parts that measure flow accurately, one on the fuel going in and one on the fuel going out, and then you'd have to calculate the return fuel, and we don't do that. Um, The ECM takes all the parameters that are happening and makes its best guess at what the fuel economy is, and they have gotten much better over the years. There was a time where I said, just ignore that. It's not even close. Recently, though, we see a lot of the newer trucks where that that gauge is pretty darn accurate most of the time. Right. I'm wondering when when you go in and tune, does that mess with the ECM's ability to be able to to uh, guess at that number better? Well, it can in like in certain. It depends on how you do it. Is really that's what I'm wondering because yeah. if you go through in like some people like on cats, this is a big thing on cats where they change the injector trim number to something bigger. Yeah. So if the injector trim number says it's supposed to flow 200 cc's of fuel, this is the number you put in it. If you put a different number in it, then you can make the ECM think that it needs to turn the injector on longer to flow 200 cc. Got it. So in reality, now instead of flowing 200, it flows 250 or 275. If you, that's just, I'm just making up numbers. No, that makes sense. The point is, that's with how the ECM models it's fuel flow rate. And you can also, that's one way, and that really throws off the dash and mileage and everything like that. But the way I did this one was I just asked for more torque, and I made, I made some changes as far as, like, fuel pressure, timing, boost, stuff like that. Uh, so that really shouldn't mess with any of the fuel modeling Got characteristics. Okay. But I wanted to double-check it anyway. But, uh Yeah. Got it. I, I was I was a little scared. Yeah, yeah. So well, far, uh, seven point seven. He was at seven point two five, so a I, little bit of an increase, which is good. Yeah, I think uh, I think I have a new project. I think I'm going to get with um, Joel and Steve Crone and uh, a couple other people from the nine mile per gallon group, and I think I'm going to form a little committee, and we're going to do everything we can to help get this guy to nine. So you have to get the tattoo. Uh, yeah, that would, that would involve selling this truck and buying new 2022 Alco high super or whatever. All right. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We might be up for the challenge. I make fun of them, but they're great trucks. And like, I, I'm really intrigued by them. I wish I could see more because whatever they're doing is really working. Um, I, everybody that I see Joel post about, you know, it's, it's hard to argue with data and, and numbers and stuff like that. They're they're working really well. So um, I would like to know about them. I have an offer for you. Oh, would you like to attend some training? Sure, I'll, I'm I'll, always down for that. Yeah, I thought so. I'll set something up. We we. Um, uh, Joel has done a great job. He has great contacts over there, and and he set up a training. Um, 
I went through an eight-hour training, all online. Um, it was all about the architecture of the engine itself, the the shorter stroke, the longer connecting rod, all the, the architecture and why that allowed us to downspeed the engine so much and still keep emissions running right. And it was really interesting, and I think... Joel's working on setting up an, another training session like that on a different topic. I'd have to go back and look to see what it was. Um, but on this next one coming up, if you can, I'll get you involved. Yeah, I, like I said, I would love to. There, uh, whatever secret ingredient they have is it just works. So it, um, it, it really actually, yeah, actually, I'd I'd also like to see about getting you, maybe I can even go get the recording. They probably made a recording of ours. Um, I think you would really enjoy that last training session I went through where they, and actually what they did was they took all the engines and they, they laid them out side by side with bore and stroke. And they showed um, why the, uh, the bottom end of the Volvo was so much more stout. Um, you know, the, the, the bearings, everything on the bottom yeah, end. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was the point. They said, look, you know, not only do you have to get the architecture right to be able to slow this down, but you've got to, you've got to strengthen that bottom end. If we're going to downspeed into the, you know, 900 RPM range or a thousand RPM, right. um, you can't do that with most of the engines on the market today. You would tear up the bottom end on them. So it was really interesting to see that comparison. And, you know, actually one of the kind of the worst examples almost was the MX. It was almost the opposite of the architecture. And when you look at it and you say, well, you know, we're starting to see we have a hard time getting fuel mileage out of those. We're having more emission problems. We don't really know how to tune those or how to spec them and how to run them right. And that's kind of not only did I learn a lot about the Volvo engine, but I learned a lot about the other engines. And if you have one of these, what is possible and what can we do and what are we dealing with? So um, I think you would really get a lot out of that one. Yeah, uh, Bruce I, and I Pete, I think you guys would love that one too. That one was almost purely from a mechanical standpoint, why this engine architecture works so well. Did he have this over in Ohio? Um, uh, no, it was just, uh, we had one of the, um, the trainers from Volvo do it online for us. Oh, online? Okay. Yeah. It was really good too. Sure. Sure, we'd be interested. Yeah. I'll, I'll look into that. Cause I think, uh, I think you guys would really appreciate, you know, seeing the differences in the, the comparison of the engines. It really, once I saw it, it really made sense. Uh, don't get carried away with appreciate. We just want to know more. No, you have to. <laughs> you, have like to Volvo, you have to appreciate <laughs> it. You have to be grateful for the yeah. opportunity. Uh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, we would. I'd like to know more about it. All right, good. With that, what do you say we go to some phone calls? I'm ready. All right, boy. We took up the whole hour on our open today. It's kind of crazy. Let's uh, let's go to Oklahoma to get started. Bill, welcome to the program. How y'all doing this morning? Good. What can we help you with? I got an ISX that uh, made oil one time. Explain and, that. And it made a lot. It made a lot of oil. I had to drain out about three gallons 
and it scared me so bad when I drained that three gallons out to put it back down to below a gallon, a gallon low, I dumped the gallon of Lucas. I've got an oil sample that I've sent off. It hadn't come back yet. I don't know. And I had just had a service done on it. The problem I was having, the fuel actuator on the back side of the fuel pump went bad. I don't know if that was possibly putting fuel in the system for fuel dilution or what. I was, I'm, I'm just curious. Hey, Pete um, or Bruce, a, a fuel actuator, there's no crossover anywhere there where we could get fuel in the oil because of that, is there? I would think just the fuel pump itself would be the only place. Yeah. And so it, once I got back to my, yeah, once I got back to my shop and I dropped that oil out after I pulled a sample. Good. And refilled, done an oil change because it, you know, I, I was, I was scared of it. Hadn't done it no more. Now that's interesting. I don't know if I've, ever remember a case where we were getting that much of a contaminant in the crankcase because that's a lot of liquid coming from somewhere um i've never seen one just happen one time and then stop that's kind of odd so somebody correct me if i'm wrong here the only two liquids that could add volume to the crankcase would be fuel and coolant and if it were coolant we would know it because you would have to lose that much coolant in your cooling system in order to add it to your oil system. So it doesn't seem to me like it's coolant. You, you didn't have any coolant-related issues at the same time, right? No. I think it has to be fuel. Is there anything else this could be? Anybody? No. The only two items that could get in there is you know, uh, fuel or coolant. Yeah, we, we could. I've never had we couldn't possibly make enough water through condensation or something like that that that's just out of the question so with this volume it would have to be fuel or coolant we would know if it was coolant so to me it has to be fuel but where did it come from and why did it stop did you did you replace that fuel actuator you were talking about yes i did huh It's the, the little fuel actuator that sits back there on the back of that, uh, the, the fuel pump. Got the two bolts in it, you know, the little electric actuator. Does the, can the actuator, I, 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 I don't know this because I'm not familiar with this whole setup. Is there anything the actuator could do to the pump that would cause the problem? I would think the only thing that could do that would be, you know, the seals in the pump going bad. That's what it seems like, yeah. Hmm. I don't know. This is, uh, and I have a feeling like even like I say, the, even when the oil sample comes back, uh, it seems like a very highly likelihood that it's going to be fuel. So when the sample comes back and it tells us fuel, we're still not going to know why until we can figure this out. And like I say, I had the oil changed on the road, and the, 
my thinking is it's either fuel dilution or they did not drain all the oil out whenever they done the service. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's a piece of maybe if you explained that earlier, I missed it. I didn't realize that the three gallons too much happened right after an oil change. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Oh. That and the, the fuel actuator acting up all at the same time, you know. Got it. So, so so now the oil sample is important. If that oil sample comes back and there's yeah. no contamination in it, then, yeah, they just overfilled the oil. Uh, like I say, whenever I drained the oil out, you know, I added a gallon of Lucas just. Yeah, that's, uh, a, that's a good because idea. Because I just inframed this engine. I just inframed the engine, and the engine ain't even got 60,000 miles on it yet, you know. <laughs> and just so. just because it was in the shop for an in-frame, and I've seen this happen before, it's not possible that somebody put the wrong dipstick back in this engine, is it? No. Okay. Because I've seen that happen. No. They probably filled it with one of those guns. And has you dial in how many gallons of oil you want, and then it's yeah. calculated, and they just put too much oil. That's what it sounds like. Okay. So that that. Okay. Well, when I get the when I get the sample back, uh, that will definitely tell us if we don't have fuel dilution, and that tells me that they just overfilled it. Yep. Exactly. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, I appreciate it, guys. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Pennsylvania. John, welcome to the program. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I was calling. I'm interested in a 93 International Cab Over. It's got a 60 Series 11 liter cool. with a million miles on it. The guy tells me that he put all new tires, new brakes, new drums, new shocks. Uh, I'm assuming it's a uh, injector harness under the valve cover. He replaced that uh, windshield. But the only problem is the truck in Idaho, and I live in Pennsylvania. Hey, John, I'm pretty sure that truck has wheels. Who cares where it is? If it was in Hawaii or Alaska, I might have an issue. But if it's in the Continental 48, who cares? If it's the right truck, it's the right truck. I tell people all the time, don't shop for a truck locally. You're just limiting yourself. Shop the whole country when you're looking for a truck. So the big question really comes down to um, how many total miles on this truck. Since it's a 93, we want to verify it hasn't turned over once. One million... Twenty thousand. One million twenty thousand. Have you verified that through? Um, oh, I just forgot the rig dig. No, I would just because it's a no. nine. It, just because it's a ninety-three, it's entirely possible that could be two million for all we know. So I would just verify it. Right. Just just make that check. How I much? know it was in the moving industry. It's an old United Van that, Lines truck. Oh, okay, and that would and make... they don't s- run very many miles. They don't. The movers average fifty to 60,000 miles a year, about half of what a van does. So, yep. yeah, that it's possible then. I would still verify it. 
plus you'll get all kinds of other history in the rig dig that'll help us for 40 bucks or whatever you charge they charge it's worth it um how much do they want for this thing Fifteen thousand. i'd buy it i i actually like this truck a lot i the 11 liter is one of my favorite engines. Now, he inspected too. Yeah, that's fine. That's not a big deal to me. I mean, we can take any truck and get it to pass a DOT inspection. They don't really look at all that much. Um, what are you going to do with this truck? Um, I'm thinking next spring. I just want to get it home. I want to get it road wet, you know, my, you know, where I know it ain't going to break down on me, whether I have to rebuild the engine or not. I want to, you know, figure that out because they did a service without doing an oil sample. Yeah, so well, they they always that kind of bothered me a little bit. They always do, unless you can get to them ahead of time and ask. But I will tell you this: that eleven liter is is a lot like an N fourteen. That thing was just about bulletproof. They almost always made it to one point three, one point four without touching them. Uh, it was just a really solid engine. That's kind of why I like this. That 11 liter, I think it's a great engine. As long as you're not going to put it into like severe duty. I mean, it, it, it is a smaller engine. No, I was thinking it's, light. Yeah. Right. I was thinking light loads all the way. <laughs> oh, that, that, that engine is awesome the, uh, for that. Hold, then, hold on. Hold on one second here, guys. Hold on one second. If you're interested in an older cab over, there's a 94 white Volvo cab over 412,000 original miles 430 60 series Detroit one owner truck 234 inch wheelbase friend of mine just bought it he bought it just to buy it because the truck is absolutely gorgeous and here's a truck you don't have to work on how much well, the last time I seen a truck like that, they wanted pretty penny. For I, that's it. what I was going to say. That, <laughs> no, that's a, I think that's a, it's. I think it's around thirty five thousand. But if you're going to spend fifteen or seventeen for a million mile truck, you're going to put way over that into it. Here, you can buy a four hundred and twelve thousand dollar, four hundred and twelve thousand mile truck. I mean, nineteen ninety four, one owner. So here's a good example of. It came from Iowa, by the way. Well, here's Georgia now. Here's a good example of how both of these trucks, even though their prices are, you know, miles apart, double plus some, both of them are, are good buys. Really just depends on your budget, what you want to do with it. I'd love the truck you just described, Bruce. If, if You know, if you've got the budget, you've got the money. That's an awesome truck. You can't go wrong. If you're just trying to get in right. something a lot less expensive, I'm still interested in this truck even at a million miles, just because the price is just so good. Um, you may not have to touch that engine. I, one of the things you can do before you even go down there, um, just have the the dealer, whoever has it, have them do a, um, a manometer test, a crankcase pressure test. That'll give us a pretty good idea of w- what the cylinder kits are looking like. And, you know, if we got another year or two okay. left, um, we'd be able to tell that pretty easy without an oil sample. We can tell that with a a crankcase pressure test, and this may be a really good buy in today's market. It's hard to find anything for 15000 and this actually sounds like it might yep. be pretty solid. 
Can I tell you where it's at or who has it? If you want, sure. You might have heard of them. It's Black Sheep Customs out of Blackfoot, Idaho. They're a custom. They do stretch frames. They do engine overhauls. They do all kinds of work. I'm not familiar with them, but... Uh, now, where they I, got this truck, haven't you, aren't you? Well, and, and that's the beauty of go do the rig dig. When you get off the phone with me, you'll know exactly where they got it from, who's owned it, how many times it's been inspected, if it's ever been wrecked, if it's... It, every every time that truck came in contact with DOT at a scale or the side of the road, that's recorded and rig dig has it all. Okay. That's for Jeff. Yeah, I got the VIN number. Hey, there it is from... Jay Pater that makes the videos with the old cat earth moving equipment from Blackfoot, Idaho. Hmm. So you wouldn't be afraid to drive that truck 2,000 miles? I, I wouldn't be afraid to drive that truck 200,000 miles. Well, that's, that's all I wanted. I just wanted your opinion. I trust no, you no, it's, opinion, it, so I, you know, we're, that's we're, what makes me nervous because... <laughs> We're going back yeah, to pretty Georgian. simple engines here. Go to Georgian, buy the one with 412,000 miles. Save yourself a lot of extra money. All right. I'll have to look it up. See, now, I find it? See, now what are you going to do? You call Just call me after the show, and I give you the... Call me after the show, and I give you the, the uh, guy that has it. I'll give you his phone number. I've known him for 40 years, so... All right. See, you called to get advice. Now you got two different answers. What are you going to do? <laughs> actually, <laughs> actually, it's not two different answers. I'm with Bruce. I, I would love that truck he just described, but I also would still consider this one. But the only difference is I have to pay. I could pay cash for one, and I'd have to finance and, the other. And, 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 and trying to finance a truck that old is hard. Well, and that was that was really my point in this. It it really comes down to budget and use. It, maybe we don't want to spend thirty five thousand yeah. on a truck because we're not going to use it a lot, or we're not going to put a lot of miles on it, or whatever. Or we don't want to go finance that other twenty thousand or whatever it is. So that's why I'm saying yeah. both vehicles interest me. It just depends on the situation, which one I would buy. Yeah. The one I'm talking to you about may be a little less. I forgot to write the price down, but I, I thought I was talking to him about in the 30s. Just talked to him yesterday, by the way. So, Yeah, I'd look into it. Although, if you yep. just if you just want to do a cash deal and that's how much cash you have, then, I mean, that kind of makes the decision for you. That's what I was looking at because I just want to be debt free. Yeah, no, you there's. Know? I've learned that from you too. Be debt free. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, especially the the economy we're going into right now. If this were 2017 and you know we were looking at great rates and things getting better all the time, I'd be a little more likely to maybe stretch a little, spend a little more. But we're at the opposite end of the economy. We're all worried about how bad things might get during this time. I'd much rather just buy this in cash and have a pretty good solid truck that I don't have a payment on. Hey, Kevin, is that 94 a D-Deck 2? Does I that make that a D-Deck 2? I think that is a D-Deck 2, yeah. Yes. Yeah, my God. Yeah, I think if you... Well, wait a minute, you know, Pete. That it, do a man but this is also the 11 liter, too. That, Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. And if he's not hauling eight thousand pounds in the mountains, that like that's a and, fine engine. I think the decision part of it would be made is if they are willing to manometer it, 
and it's out of spec, which would indicate it needs a rebuild. Right there's another seventeen or eighteen grand for a rebuild. It, it, that, so I think right. The two good options. I would look into them deeper, and and the first thing would be to call that place and see if they will throw it exactly um, on a dyno and honor yep. it. Yep, exactly. Because that, that be is right. that could um, be the deciding factor, right? If it's solid. The engine's solid, and you think you got another year or two out of it, and we'll be able to tell that, then this would be good. If it's not solid, if it looks like it's going to need an in-frame within the next 12 months, then that's not really an all-cash deal because you, you don't have the cash to... to right. So that's, that's step number one, um, get that done. Leroy, have you guys got any kind of a tune? Have you ever worked on an 11-liter? Yeah, we do a lot of them. Oh, good. Good. What kind of horsepower and torque you know, can you get out of these? Would they come? Like like three, 350, like 350, 330. Three I've seen a couple of them. I think 370. Yeah. Really yeah I, like have, I have seen a 370 too, yeah. Do they make any, they make any four, over 400? Or I don't think so. 370. You know, the... Well, like a fire, seen them in some fire equipment. Yeah, yeah. The, generally, fire equipment a little higher. The twelve liter. Yeah the the old um, twelve seven used to come in a three seventy four thirty split horsepower, but I don't think I ever saw that option in a, a class eight truck. Uh, other equipment, I've seen it, but I think most of these were like three seventy. And some as low as three thirty yeah, from the factory. Yeah, I think we could probably get four fifty, four seventy five out of it. I think that's it depends ideal. On yeah. Turbo, if we want to upgrade turbo, we could probably squeeze a little bit more out of it too. So Yeah, I think if you can get to four seventy five, five hundred, that's just about ideal. Hey, um, I also have the two more of those C sixteen caterpillars available with less than <laughs> two hundred hours on them out of the gen sets. The EPA made them quit using them less than two hundred hours. Wow. On C sixteen cats. So All right. John, does that help? The- yes it does. All right. Well let us know what you decide. I'd love to hear That's back from you. Help. And I will. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Tennessee this time. Charlie, welcome to the program. Well, hello, gentlemen. How are you today? Wonderful. What's on your mind? I've got a question. Well, I had an issue Sunday, two heater hoses, and then I blew one yesterday. And everyone's telling me it's a possibility of the head gasket. Now, two of the heater hoses that blew had the heat shrink plastic clamp like comes out of the factory. If we're talking an 07, a truck that build an 06. And don't lose no coolant. Temperature pretty much stays normal where it's always been. If there was a blowed head gasket and I shut the truck off, wouldn't it still have pressure in the system after 30 minutes to have to be relieved or blow coolant out of the reservoir if the reservoir is full of coolant? 
Harvey there. Oh, yeah. Well, if it's, if it's a blown head gasket, the gasket would be blown the compression, uh, and it has to get into the water grommet, past the water grommet, to get into the radiator. Are you blowing any coolant out the overflow of the radiator? No, and I've driven this truck. I've blown three head gaskets in the lifetime of me having this truck. And the last one I blew, I was advised by quite a few people not to drive from Freightliner in Western Idaho back to New York with a load. Well, I drove it. And it never blew a cooling line. But what I just had to keep putting uh, cooling in it. And that time when it blew it, the uh, number four cylinder started rocking. So it flattened out the, I'm going to call it the firing ring, and left the coolant get by and the exhaust get into the coolant. So you said you had, these had plastic clamps. Yep, the plastic heat trip clamps on two of them. One going to the heater core on the bunk up in the front, and one going to the heater core and the uh, to the cab. And we just took a knife, cut the clamp, the hose, and pulled it right off. Which would make them hoses somewhere around 16 years old. Yeah, I think you just had a hose failure. But there's an easy That's test for you to do that you could do yourself. Um, take the okay. rag off. Or be careful with hot. I would always put on like a pretty heavy rubber glove and some rags. While the truck's running, you cover the red neck with your hand, nice tight seal against it, and then have a water bottle, half full of water in your overflow tube and look for bubbles. If you get bubbles in that bottle, then you're getting compression into the uh, cooling system, whether it be a cracked head or a head gasket, but at least you'll know it's in there. If there is no bubbles, then there's a good chance you don't have a blown head gasket or a cracked head. That's a pretty simple test. And generally, pretty okay. reliable. So that's, do that. that's a pretty simple test. Yeah. Alright, now the other thing, I started my second gown of Mad Max on Saturday. If Kevin wants to look at it, my last four or five fill-ups has been seven plus miles per count on this truck with the fuel. And my fuel, fuel filter used to turn black. It's not turning black anymore. Do you think that there's something that that Mad Max might have been an additive or something in the fuel caused it to turn black that the Mad Max took away or overrode? But my filter's not turning black anymore. Everybody told me it was algae, uh, but it was never gritty and it was never slimy. It was just, it would turn black on the filter. That could be asphaltine. Yeah. Which will do the black. Well, would, wouldn't that be gritty? And would the Mad Max stop the asphalting? I think that's a question we have to get with Jane and get back to you on that one. I, I don't know. Okay, I mean, I'm just, I'm just asking. Now I'm about ready to pull another oil sample, 
And Bruce, the day I sent you them pictures was February the 18th, and I sent them to Bruce Mallison. Uh, and I've got the port on the side of the block. That's where I'm going to pull my next oil sample from. And they'll get pulled here within probably tonight. It'll be about 900 miles early. But I'm going to pull it to see if my lead and everything comes back down. If it does, then I'm going to order in an OPS. Because that way the filter's below where I sample and not above where I sample. I'm going to pull from a different port or different place on the motor to see the possibility that this bypass I have on might not be as good as I think it is. That's a good guess. Uh, because, like I say, it's a drop-in filter, and the filter's on top, so I'm just thinking maybe there was something in there that when I put the filter in before I pulled that last sample, might have been something in the bottom of that cartridge that I knocked loose and brought that lead way up. It's definitely possible. And the oil analysis will let us know. Yeah, well, like I say, I'll probably pull it this evening. But my biggest concern was with the coolant lines flowing, but I know they're old. Uh, so that's probably just the age of them is what blew them out. But I had to ask the professionals to see what your opinion was. And I'll, I'll check that with uh, half a bottle of water on the overflow and see if I get bubbles. Because while the truck's running, nothing's bubbling inside of the reservoir that I can see with the cap on. Right, and it doesn't always do that. So the problem is generally is an accurate way to, to go about it. Yeah, because I know when I blew the head gauge get the last time, when I'd loosen up the cap, I could see the bubble, the coolant and the bubbles coming through. From For some reason, there's two lines on the right side of my reservoir. One goes on top of the thermostat housing, and the other one goes up to the top left side of the radiator, and they was both, both of them two lines was flowing uh, coolant when I'd loosened it up, when I blew the head gasket the last time. And that's been 700,000 miles ago. So I'll, I'll check that. Thank you for the information. And you want to keep an eye on the fuel economy. I had Two weeks where I was in the mid-high uh, sixes, but I was running the Northeast, New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Massachusetts. And then, uh, like I say, the last four or five, I was well up over seven, which I'm really liking the Mad Max. <laughs> mileage Max. Max Mileage. Not uh, Max Mileage Improver. The Mileage Improver. Yeah. Yeah, the mileage improver. Excellent. Uh, well, I, th I think they, I think you got it listed as Mad Max because you haven't actually yeah. come up with the correct name when I ordered it. That's how we have a system. We had to call it something to be able to bill it out. 
So yeah, that name. So it's kind of a in-house name for the product until we come up with the name. Greatest thing ever. We do long. Yeah. <laughs> well, we could call it uh, Doctor James Famous Invention if we want to. Because I tell you, I like the way it works with this truck. Now, this is just one truck, and I know there's more out there running it. And each truck acts different out of the three million that's on the road. That no two of them acts the same. I have uh, had since the since the radio show last week. I've had several people call, and the, uh, they're very happy with it. Some have gained fuel mileage. Everyone has gained response and quietness. Hey, Bruce, if we could, I know it might be a lot of work, but. If we could go through the people that are testing it and find out who has uh, who's tracking it on fuel gauges, um, I'd love mm-hmm. to put a group together so I could monitor the whole group. Okay. If we could find a list or, you know, start a list or whatever, um, I'd like to track them all, whoever's using fuel gauges. Okay. All right, good. Let's go to Ohio. John, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for taking my call. I've got a 2014 386 glider with a 12.7 Detroit in it. And last night, I was rolling off some hills out there in Pennsylvania running my jake. And after I shut my jakes off, it sounded like one jake was still engaged. And... Once I rolled into the fuel again, once it started building uh, turbo pressure, it would go away and it, it would sound like a dead miss until I built built some pressure. Then it would go away. I was wondering, and I am due for the overhead to be ran. Pete, does that Jake break have the same type of uh, spool and spring that the big cam did? Yeah, so it's probably a broken spring in here, so we need to go for it and done. I know on, on the N14, they have two springs per hole. I'm not sure if it's one or two, but you have a broken spring, and, and one Jake is actually hanging up. And that's exactly yeah. Okay, if you would let it go long enough, it would go away on its own. It turns into two. You know, it's annoying. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Um, the overhead that have them change the springs they're not terribly expensive doesn't really take take care of that problem okay and that's kind of what I was thought it probably was because it it didn't sound like a full set it sounded like just one cylinder possibly maybe is what it sounded like to me and then yeah once I once I rolled into the fuel it totally went away yep yep I'm sure no I'm sorry I said uh, should I just avoid using my jake then probably I I would. Can you go from like stage um, one to stage two, or you just have an on off? Uh, yeah, I, I do have one, two, and three stages. So what you can do to help isolate which cylinder it is, run it to stage one a couple of times and see if it goes away, and then stage two, um, and that will help isolate which side it is. At least you can do a run on say stage two because it's the number one stage causing it. Yeah, I was going to do that once I got closer to home. 
yeah, that's how you kind of figure out which one it is. But they all probably should learn them. Uh, I wouldn't use them until I got home. I figured it. Oh, John, you broke up again there at the end. Oh, okay. I, I figured I would uh, run that test and figure I'd, I would try stage one, stage two, stage three, and kind of figure out which one it was, but I wasn't going to do that until I got closer to home. Yep, and then just don't run the stage that it's um, acting up on. That's all. I mean, you have some Jake breaks that are none. Yeah, that's true. And one other thing, I've had several of these 12.7 trucks, and, and it seems like uh, I've always had a little bit of oil seep from the head gaskets on them. Uh, and this one here is doing the same thing. I had the I had the head gasket replaced about 180,000 ago, and it's back to leaking again. And which it ain't real bad. I wash it off every week and, you know, and I just go on with it. Kind of like I've had all my, all of them. So I'm guessing it's probably this block is arched and that's why that, that head casket keeps failing. Well, it could be the deck surface could be in poor shape, but keep in mind, it also could be a valve cover leak. Uh, hot oil really migrates. And is it coming like from the front or the back or is it in the middle? It's in the front. And that's kind of a notorious place for these to leak. The valve cover set up kind of a, an odd setup. And, and a lot of times they leak from the valve cover and it looks like it's a head gasket. I'm pretty sure I can get this one really clean. And then it really looks like it's coming from the head gasket. This is exactly where it's from. And like I said, it made it another 180000 again. You know, I know this. This was this came from a Fitzgerald motor originally, and it didn't make it very far. And who knows how many miles or how many times this block has been rebuilt? Correct. Yeah. I mean, if it's just one of those things where is it worth even you know looking into? Simply wash it off occasionally. Right. Well, that's what I figured. I, I've had several of them from this same spot, and I you know. I figure it ain't hurting nothing. Uh, just just keep on washing it off, right? That's what I would do. Because, you, you know, you okay. take your head off and line of protrusion's bad or a deck's bad, then you're committed to a, an engine at that point. A rebuild's not going to fix it. Well, I can wash that motor off several times. <laughs> it, it, don't, it don't cost me nothing. There you so, go. That's what I'd do. Yep. All right. Well, I sure appreciate the uh, the advice on that, Jake. Break that's what I kind of figured it was, but I just wanted to, somebody else to to give me a little bit of insight on it. There you go. All right, thanks for the call. We are going to uh, wrap this up. We've blown through all the calls. Any uh, anybody have anything they want to close with? Yeah, Kevin. So I googled the eleven liter, and they're rated at. 330 to 365 horse, uh, 1150 to 1350 torque. Okay. From the factory. Now that you say the 365, that does sound familiar. I remember a lot of them at 330. Yeah. Okay. It definitely got room to 
improve the horsepower and torque and response of the program. Yeah, I, you know, I think even in a, a pretty standard van operation, especially if you can choose your own freight, I, I'd be happy with one of those, especially if you guys could get it up into that 450 to 500 range. Um, Leroy, what what could we end up with torque-wise? Could we get to 16? Uh, what did you say originally? 1350. So 1350 for sure. Yeah. 1500. I mean, we can get it to do whatever, but we well, yeah, get it to do it <laughs> Safe, safely so it doesn't grenade itself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think as long as the guy had the pyro and boost gauge, you know, we could set up at 1550. If it looks like he has room on the, the pyro, then we can add a little bit more feel to it. Um, uh, you know, kind of a yeah. situation like that. Yeah. No, I, you know, I had, uh, I had talked at one time about, you know, building kind of a radical, um, project truck again, and it was going to be a true single axle. And then I was going to match it to a spread axle trailer. And I was going to make the truck as light as we could make it. So I would have went with the 11 liter and really lightened everything up. And my goal was to be able to scale as much payload on four axles that we now do on five. And on paper, I had it all figured out. Um, But then building the project started to get pretty expensive and time consuming. But uh, that was one of the reasons I was looking at doing something with an 11 liter. I was just going to try to save weight everywhere I could and get to the point where you could scale, you know, 40 to 45,000 easily on just four axles. The 11 liters pretty light at 2,500 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. You could build a, you wanted something radical to bring your home back. (laughs) Do what? (laughs) I said, if you wanted something radical, just bring that motor home back. It's already pretty radical. What are you going to do to it now? I've got the only, uh, you know, more. race. RV. Yeah, when uh, when I'm in the RV park and, you know, the, the guys with the signature 600 in their coach are bragging, I just say, nah, you guys got nothing. It'll be a radical vehicle when we're done. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, I just might take you up on that. We'll see. All right, we are. Uh, we're gonna wrap this up, and uh, we will see you back here next week. Thanks to the team from Pittsburgh Power. Uh, haven't heard from John or Stanford yet this morning, so I have a feeling I'm doing the the uh, pit myself today, which is fine. Um, maybe a little shorter. It'll depend on calls. I have maybe. Uh, I've got about fifteen to thirty minutes. Maybe I want to talk about today if it's. Uh, I'm on my own. And then if you've got calls, you can always call in. Uh, We'll go as long as we want or might be short today. We'll see. And uh, we'll see you back here tomorrow for Destination Health as well. Thanks to the team from Pittsburgh Power. Be safe. Be profitable. Be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.